Hello and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Korva. And I'm Kikita Kaori, and today we are going to talk about mountains. Mm-hmm. Because that's another interesting terrain. Yeah, interesting terrain series. But first we do have some news. We have a new Legend of the Five Rings novel announced from Aconite Press due January 2022. I can't get over that. Sounds like the future. And it's just it's just next year. So <laughs> only a few months away. Anyway. We start the year off with a Scorpion and Lion Clan rivalry when a diligent yet unappreciated clerk develops a new form of map-making technique. Border tensions between rival samurai clans escalate into war over a hidden valley in this fantasy epic from the breathtaking world of Legend of the Five Rings. And this is To Chart the Clouds by Evan Dicken. So look out for that coming in 2022. Right. Also, as a reminder, the great clans of Rokugan comp- compilation novel is coming out in november of 2021 so that's got phoenix i think and uh scorpion and dragon maybe and then crane some some number of the novellas yeah what i want is a compilation of all the rpg bits at the back all the 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 law sections that you got at the back probably won't be in there which, no. I mean, at least those are available, but it probably means that there will not be a lore section for Lion. No, no, Crane. sadly. For those of you who don't know what we're talking about, that's, those were in the back of the physical novellas if you bought those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they don't, they, they don't seem to show up in the PDFs or anywhere else, and I'm mildly grumpy about that. Never mind. <laughs> well. However... We've got that novel to look forward to. That's the important thing. Moving on to our topic, which is mountains. Culturally, Rokugan has a lot of aspects of Japan. However, mountains are very much tied to the geology of the country, continent, whatever you're in. I mean, that's the, almost the, the backbone of the geology. You know, the geology is the backbone of how the continent works. And in an, in any country, the culture, the resources, the places where people live and don't live, all of that is going to be tied to the geology. You know, you're going to find people living where there can grow plants. They are going to be uh, taking industry from where they can get their, their food and where they have uh, resources. Now, Japan, culturally, is on an island where... Large-scale farming was intense and focused in small areas because the island is extremely mountainous, but not with super high Himalaya kind of mountains, but it's it's a volcanic archipelago, and all the mountains in Japan are volcanic, and then people live and work in little pockets in between these mountains. And there's a lot of forestry that happens because it's all up and down the slides of these mountains where it can't be uh, easily cordoned off to make rice fields. Okay. The geology of Rokugan is not at all the same as the geology of Japan. And so it's, (laughs) it's interesting to see the differences and consider what that means. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I honestly don't think we should pay that much attention because the geology of Rock Again makes no sense whatsoever. It very <laughs> clearly was, let's make a generic fantasy map and then make no consideration for how that might change. They, they weren't thinking in those terms when they made the map. Or should I say maps? Because it morphs, morphs so completely from edition to edition. So... Um, I would kind of like the intent is a samurai game. And I think we should kind of go with that and, and kind of hand wave a lot of the geography because oh, it makes sense. As you have said several times, it doesn't make a lick <laughs> of sense. But never mind. River, r- rivers don't do that. Mountains don't do that. Mountains don't do that with rivers. Rivers don't do that with mountains. And it's like, never mind. However, they, there are mountains, and they do have some interesting things. 
Yes. What I wanted to do was talk a little bit about what the biggest mountains are in Japan, since most of them are not that big. We'll talk a little bit about how the mountains are in Japan, a little bit about how uh, the people of Japan traditionally saw those mountains, or maybe some of the stories associated with the mountains, because that can carry into Rokugan, where where we would have stories about the greatest mountains. We don't necessarily have identified, like, this is the tallest mountain in Rokugan, right? But people are going to approach what a mountain is and what it means in similar ways because there's a samurai story even there. So it's going to have, you know, stories and stuff. So we'll, we'll talk about the mountains and some of the stories associated with key mountains in Japan. And then I thought we would pretend like uh, the geology of Rokugan was somewhat realistic. And I can't help this because I am a geologist by background. And uh, so I will try and shoehorn it into some sort of real life analogies so that you can pull up pictures and look and see what a mountain range looks like of this kind or this kind based on what they have described in the pictures. Then you can use that to help visualize the world and think about it in in somewhat of a uh, more realistic kind of way, I guess, if you want to. Yeah, yeah. What would the show be if we weren't overanalyzing everything after all? Absolutely. <laughs> That's what we do. Yeah. So there are three... The three highest mountains in Japan are called the Three Sacred Mountains. And the king of all the mountains is Mount Fuji. So I thought uh, you could give some of the folklore of Mount Fuji. Yeah, it's one. It's the most famous mountain of Japan. It's iconic. There are ukiyo print sequences, which are literally just 100 views of Mount Fuji from various different locations, even if it's really tiny. So that's the kind of of kind of that's where it sits in the kind of consciousness of Japan, and a lot of it is because it, it's this, it's this incredibly symmetrical cone shape, and it is visible from a long way away. It's specifically it's specifically visible from Tokyo when you know Edo, which is, it was just a really big important thing. Um, it was also considered very very sacred. It was also believed to have grown all in one night, which is somewhat impressive. I, I wonder if that's like a, a cultural memory of it growing, not necessarily immediately, but there are people who remember when it wasn't there and then it was because volcano. And that kind of got passed down and passed right. down and passed down and became instead of, I, I remember it happening over a few months, they kind of, it happened in one day. Yeah, it has a story of, uh, among the many folklores, it's got a, a story of a, a woodcutter who basically was sleeping in his hut with his family. And when he woke, he heard a sound outside, woke up outside, and there was you know, Mount Fuji there. What, was that mountain there yesterday? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> that, would be a bit, that would be a somewhat of a surprise, yeah. Uh, just in front of Mount Fuji is um, Aoegahara, which is the haunted forest, very famous haunted forest. So that's a fun thing to, to chuck places. And the it's it's on the top of it, um, walking up to it, walking up the mountain um, during the, the right season is, is a common activity. And I believe there's a shrine there, the Asama Shrine, which is for the god of volcanoes. So that's obviously, and the mountain, the whole mountain is considered sacred which is a thing to, to take into account. Um, the story of Princess Kaguya also appears to be related strongly to Mount Fuji. And for those who don't know that one, I think we've covered it before. We've covered variations, but not the Fuji. Yeah, not the Fuji link. So Princess Kaguya comes from, there was a bamboo cutter, lives in the forest, um, one of those couples in Japanese folklore who want children but can't, can't have them, and they find them in some random place. In this case, 
he finds a glowing stalk of bamboo and cuts it and there is a tiny baby and they raise the child um she becomes incredibly beautiful and much beloved and also extra cash keeps getting found in these glowing bamboo stalks to uh keep her in a really nice kind of lifestyle it turns out that she is a princess from the moon sent to Earth. And in some versions, it's because she's curious about life on Earth. Sometimes it's to save her from a celestial war, all that sort of thing. In this version, so there are princes from all over the country asking for her hand in marriage, and she rejects them all, and in some cases sends them off to missions to impress her that end up getting them killed. But hey. And in the, in the end, she accepts the emperor because she wants to return to the moon. The... You know, the moon people come for her. They take her away in a great big parade back to the moon, despite the emperor trying to stop it. And she leaves for him a letter and a special gift, the elixir of immortality. If he drinks it, he will live forever. However, he doesn't want to live without her. So he writes a letter back to her and sends it and the elixir to be burnt on the highest peak of Japan, i.e. Mount Fuji in the hopes that the letter would then reach the moon. And his men follow his orders, but once they light the elixir on fire, it never stops burning, because it's elixir of immortality. That makes sense. Right. And that's why there's fires always in Mount Fuji. Yes, because that's the elixir kind of burning forever. Uh, although Fuji has been dormant for a while, <laughs> I believe. So Yes. Right. Yeah, the other two aren't so famous, but they all have stories associated with them. So uh, Mount Hakusan is considered the mountain of a, a wealthy water god um, because that mountain is the source of three major rivers through Japan. So therefore, they must all come from the water god. So That makes that makes a certain amount of sense, yeah. Um, it's also referred to just as Mount Haku, but yeah. And then Mount Tatiyama is a mountain where the spirits of the dead return. So basically all the big mountains can have their own kami that's inside the mountain or their own folklore that uh, is associated with that mountain or both. And they can clash. They don't have to be the same thing. They can have different stories depending on who's looking at the mountain. All of that is legit. And in Rokugan, it could be real. Yeah, I, I honestly can't think of very many specific named mountains in Rokugan. Like, there are mountain ranges, but... Mm -hmm. There's a handful. Mm. <laughs> so, next I thought we'd talk about those mountain ranges in Rokugan. Uh, Rokugan is not continental. And even though it has a couple mountains that are volcanic, as we said, the geology doesn't make sense. And the volcanic mountains that there are are in places where on Earth, you probably would not have a volcanic mountain range if you looked at that sort of mountain on, on a map. It just doesn't, doesn't happen there. But we'll kind of uh, describe the mountain ranges that there are, the biggest ones. And I'll describe them in a, if they were a geological phenomena, if what kind of mountains they would be. And then you can adapt any changes to the fact that it's fantasy, because <laughs> it is. So um, the first mountain range uh, is, well, the biggest mountain range that you have and the broadest and the one that you hear the most about is the Kyode Ankabe Sanokita, um, which is which I probably mangled the pronunciation of because they hardly ever use that name. <laughs> it is the Wall of the North or the Great Northern Mountains. And this is a wide, very high range that marks the northern border of Rokugan. And this range is in... Um, Dragonlands. This takes up most of Dragonlands. Uh, this range, from the way it's drawn, but also the way it's depicted, very much models the Himalayas, uh, with a few exceptions. 
which I will note, because of its width, because of how it looks related to the, con- to the general continent. If this were in the real life, I would call it uh, a mountain range caused by a convergent plate boundary. It's just that wide. It's that that rippling, um, and 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 that high. So that's what the Himalayas is. That that makes sense. Um, the Himalayas do not have volcanoes in them. <laughs> <laughs> and can't have volcanoes in them because of what they are. So that's what I said. This is this is fantasy. There is a um, volcano called the Wrath of the Kami near the Agasha Castle or Firetooth Castle in this mountain range. But it is there, and we don't know why. A fire dragon is sleeping underneath it or something. It just is. Um, as I said, this is a broad range. It goes basically off the map that we have. Um, it gets lower in elevation to the west uh, in unicorn lands, but it does extend all the way into the burning sands to the west where it finally drops off that the elevation there. Uh, and it goes all the way to the coast on the east in theory, the Yabanjin are either in those mountains or beyond those mountains, and the not very well detailed land of four rivers, which has seems to be a kind of um, model for at least the origin of certain things that in Japan came from China, so the writing system and a few other things, comes from the land of four rivers off to the north. So I don't know what to make of all of that. So there you go. Yes. And if it's still there, we have no idea. So so that's kind of the big mountain range that you see uh see the most. The mountain there is another mountain range uh that bisects the empire uh in half, a north half and a south half. And it is called uh Sakitsu Sanayama no Oi <laughs> or the Sakitsu Mountains. Or also the Spine of the World Mountains, because every fantasy map needs a Spine of the World mountain range. It's just the rule. These are the rules of fantasy cartography. <laughs> Interestingly, you can actually make a bit of a an analogy with the Japanese. It's so-called the Japanese Alps, which is a, a, uh-huh. a new... Um, it's it's around uh, Mount Tate. Mount Tate is apparently one of these mountains. In the, in, and that is kind of... It does kind of splits the main island of Honshu. So you could make some analogies um, between those. And apparently also some of the mountains are called the Hida Mountains, which I did not know. But yeah, the, the, the spine of the world, they, they don't get as mentioned as quite as much as you'd think, given that they should really, really strongly divide Rokugan into north and south. Mm-hmm. And which is uh, kind of interesting, but there you go. Yeah, they are described as a high, narrow, and thus younger range with few passes. Uh, it runs northwest to southeast, separated by major river valleys from the northern mountains. So looking like something like something from the Rocky Mountains, maybe, which is a fault block range. But, you know, who knows? Who knows how they got there? Yeah, just from how it's described, it's really steep. It's really young. Young, young being sharp and pointy, because older. Young being sharp and pointy. Yeah, and Te- um, technical geography terms there. Just, yeah, <laughs> basically, and and uh, that's why it's so hard to hard to pass. It's not like they're particularly high. They're not high like the Dragon Mountains are high, but because. Uh, a fault block range uh, has this like really start sharp face on it. It makes it really hard to pass, except where you can get these these passes through it. So these specific places, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. You have you have the famous passes, Baden Pass at the historical period that fifth edition is set in. Baden Pass is the big one. Mm-hmm. Iuchi Pass exists, but it's kind of small. And historically, well, there was Seikitsu Pass, but that was destroyed by Akodo in his final act 
in order to bring a mountain down on some enemies and also go out in a blaze of glory because he didn't want to get old. Um, so that's uh, no longer available. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to discover there's some shrines around where it used to be. But, uh, so Baden Pass is the big one. Yes. And uh, as I said, don't think super high, but think super steep <laughs> for that one. So that 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 makes uh, that makes some of the more the stories about it make more sense. Um, the final range that you get, which is kind of almost perpendicular to these two ranges, is the coastal range. Um, and this range is what's producing the cliffs that go along the coastline in Craylands. Um, these mountains are small. Um, probably, probably like the Sierra Nevadas in the United States. Um, they are not volcanic. The volcanic ones, as we said, are up, up north. So, so it's not a volcanic range, which is the other way you get coast, parallel coastal ranges. So this one is a probably, uh, would be, if we were going to make it a realist, you know, a real life geology one, this is probably due to a transform plate boundary or the two continents sliding across each other. And this tends to produce mountain ranges, uh, kind of near it, like the Sierra Nevadas. Um, if that's the case, then this area or the area off the coast of, of this, where the actual boundary is, would be prone to earthquakes, which it is, or at least we got a tsunami. So that would generally require an earthquake. <laughs> and, and, um, and themically having earthquakes are all along that area makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of runs up from earthquake fish bay huh um all the way all the way up to Odasanuchi. um so that's that's kind of where the that transform plate boundary would be um these mountains might mitigate the monsoon season a bit but they aren't really high enough to be more than really steep hills with the occasional cliff <laughs> It's 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 more that they're they're more there making the the coastline a bit stark rather than really being straight up mountains. Yeah. Yeah, they could qualify as a range, but not by dragon standards. <laughs> yes, mountain. Yeah, dragon are going. What mountains? What are you talking about? <laughs> so there are also scattered point ranges, basically, in across crablands. Now these wander around. From map to map, <laughs> um, they're not, they're not, the other three ranges that I did always stay in the same, you know, more or less the same place and more or less uh, have a strong line that says this is a mountain range as opposed to an inv individual mountainous spot. The Twilight Mountains in Crablands which kind of um, abuts the wall um, and it goes to the plains above evil. It's like, how much of Crablands is mountainous? Well, there's these tiny like spot mountains all over the place, but we don't really know. And how high is the plains above? This is all kind of towards the edge of the map. It's like, we need a mountain range here. We need something here so that... Shadowlands isn't just coming around the end of the wall. Yeah. So it's it's hard to really tell what they are. Yeah. So it's kind of outside Rokugan. It's not heavily inhabited and um it's not fixed. And same for the mountains within Crablands. We you know, they're just not fixed or certain. So I didn't really write very much about them and I can't do any guesses on geology for them because they're random. Yeah. Yes, I, I take it that you get the feeling that it, it's what the individual map maker felt was important, which mountains they felt was actually important enough to write down on a particular day, and then someone else comes by and has a different opinion, and so none of it makes any sense. Much like, much like the entirety of Rock again when you get down to it. 
That's true. I mean, if I was going to force it, I would say they and the individual patchy parts in um, Crablands are additional fault block mountains, just smaller blocks. That's all. It's it's you kind of get some of that in the basin and range area of the United States. So, you know, it's not inconceivable that it gets weird like that, but um, it's just not fixed enough for us to know. But the main thing of all of this goofiness is just to ask, you know, why are we, what would it be like for my party going through the mountains if I want to drag these poor lost souls through some mountains? What what can I uh, inflict, I mean, share with them in terms of gorgeous scenery? Yes, traveling through the mountains can be very, how should I put this, eventful, very much so. You, as you go up the elevations, it can get very, very cold, which means you can more or less, especially if you're going through quite steep mountains like the spine of the world, you can more or less go through several different seasons in a single day and you get weather that can be very, very changeable. If you're already in a, and in the time of year where, you know, it's just on the verge of autumn or it's just on the verge of winter, then the weather can change really, really rapidly as you get up there. Actually, all year round, I used to live in Denver, which is high up in the Rocky Mountains in the United States. And you can get snow in May or June and have it be like 80 degrees the day before. It just that's how weather works up in the mountains. Because you're you're closer to the sun, which means sometimes you don't have any cloud cover because the clouds all are beneath you. But at the same time, if the clouds do happen, then they're going to precipitate on you quite vigorously so yeah you can, you can you can have these bright sunny days with snow all around you because it snowed yesterday because yesterday was that kind of weather and today it's really bright and sunny weather and then the winds can get all caught up in the mountains and get funneled through one way or the other so yeah the the weather can change extremely rapidly and uh, yeah you don't have to hesitate. If you want a sudden snowfall, don't worry too much about the time of the year. It can just it can just do it. <laughs> and it does. In the spine of the world mountains, the snowpack where you look around and see snow would probably just be in the shaded areas of the mountains, well above the tree line. So it's it's probably not got full year round snow everywhere if you're up in the highest places of it. It's more like a patch of snow here, a patch of snow there in little little kind of glacier cirque areas. Little, otherwise, they have the little tiny lakes um, where in these uh, bowls in the, high up in the mountains. But that said, in winter, it would be definitely plenty of snow everywhere. And given the steepness, steepness and given the narrow passes, uh, avalanches in the spine of the world mountains would be particularly devastating. Yeah, they could be really, really focused down narrow passes and just narrow, um, you know, the, the gaps between ridges and just rampage down there. Um, yeah, they could be kind of really bad, especially with the variability of, of weather because it's it's that kind of thing where you have snow that gets slightly melted and then more snow on top and then you have this layer underneath that's, not very strong, and then the whole top layer just goes kaboom. Uh, that's a technical term, kaboom. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. If, if you you can end up with those these avalanches coming straight for you, which sounds kind of terrifying. The Great Northern Mountains, uh, especially there's going to be a, a lot of areas because a it's much further north, and b it gets a lot taller. So there's going to be glaciers. There's going to be areas with all round snow. There's going to be this snow, yeah, these peaks that always have snow on top of them. Many of those places are going to be completely impassable unless you know the mountains really, really well or you have cheaty monk powers, which uh, many of the Togashi do. You're also going to have avalanches there for much the same reasons. There's going to be more snow, but I think it's going to be slightly less that kind of concentrated in one area, which on the one hand is bad because it can spread over a large area, but on the other hand, it's each individual part isn't going to be quite so intense. But then again, 
You don't have to have a very intense avalanche to have an extremely bad day. <laughs> True. But having said that, I think the, the areas of the the Great Northern Mountains tend to be less inhabited, largely because of the enormous number of avalanches, I suspect. Uh, and the glaciers and the year-round snow. And, and all the other stuff. And they probably get to the kind of height where you start worrying about mountain sickness. I'm not quite sure how high you get, because I know like you, you, you hear um, that places like Denver, people um, complain about you know, newbies coming in going, I can't breathe, there's no air, and so forth. There's a, so it's just a thing you can accumulate, you can acclimatize to. But I don't, I'm not quite sure how many of the mountains of Rock again get to that kind of height. But you can get to the stage where as you climb the mountains. I think it's half of what's responsible for the dragon philosophy is the fact that they're all suffering oxygen deprivation in the high house of light. Well, they 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 get they climb they'll they'll have acclimatized to it. So they'll that may actually be one of the reasons why they're physically so um impressive is that they are they have that acclimatization which apparently is quite helpful for athletes when they go down to like more oxygenated places. But yes, that, I mean, it certainly isn't going to help people trying to find the high house of light because if it's high enough that you start getting mountain sickness, which is getting lightheaded due to oxygen deprivation, then uh, that's not going to help you find the place, is it? Unless you have a... <laughs> no, not really. A strong fate towards it. And also apparently there are volcanoes in there, but we don't know how that works. So we just shrug our shoulders and go... Fire Kami or something. Yes. The 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 volcanoes in Dragonlands seem concentrated in just a couple of places. So it's not like they're broadly or there's a whole chain of volcanoes. There's like a big big volcano. So we'll just take that as given. So if you want, you can always watch Return of the King and watch, you know a fantasy volcano erupting and trying to escape it and um yeah like like that around a volcano that's what it's like sort of just more so but it's a fantasy volcano so it, it works i mean volcanoes tend to often have very fertile land around them so you often do get people living near them so and just kind of learning to dodge every so often but since this is in the middle of a much broader mountain range we don't know how uh, how um, warm it is, or whether it's like really up high. It's just it's just a lot of stuff that we don't know there. So you can make it up. That's fine. You're allowed. <laughs> so um, talking about mountains, people do live there, especially in Dragonlands, um, and so we wanted to spend some time talking about what the villages and towns would would look like for for these mountain ranges in general because of how the mountains break up the land in mountains you're going to have really small communities they are going to be isolated from each other because of the difficulty of crossing the terrain between villages um like they would be inside a little glacier valley but then there's these sharp ridges between each glacier valley. So you basically have to climb over a mountain to get to the next glacier valley where the next next town is. I mean, I mean, at best, at best, going from one village to another means going climbing up a a, a tall mountain, right? I mean, you mean go, it, it's, it, there's going to be at the absolute best, you've got two villages that are basically on top, you know, one's directly above the other. There's no ridges in the way. It's just the slope of the mountain. Even that is going to be a pain to traverse. So you're not going to want to do it. And whichever mountain is highest up is going to be, whichever mountain is highest up, whichever village is higher up the mountain is going to be more isolated because people keep looking up and going, no, no, I'm not going today. <laughs> they can wait. Right. Um, so we have an idea there are often a lot of canyons, divisions, broken broken rock faults. You, there's places you have to uh, traverse that run either little little tiny uh, 
uh, roads, sometimes just built of wood, um, clinging to the edge of a cliff going up. So, so you just have this little walk, wooden walkway clinging to the edge of a cliff to get you from one place to another. Um, Excellent place for ambushes. Definitely too small for a horse. Right. Um, and then often you'd have rope bridges between two places, uh, that, need to connect. But, um, I mean, when we think of a rope bridge, it's, it looks pretty, uh, sturdy. Yeah. You've, you've got the time when we think about walking it, even, even if it's, uh, yeah, sometimes it's got floorboards, <laughs> it's got handholds. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's got rope, um, you know, in between, you know, up, a kind of a zigzag between the f- the floorboards and the handrails, so it's harder to fall through. I mean, that's luxury. That's a luxury rope bridge because for many of for many of these villages, and this is in real life in Nepal and many other places, that is way more rope bridge than they actually get. Um, if you get three ropes, you're lucky. Three ropes, one to one to walk on and two to hold on to. Right, that would be that would be that would be lucky. Um, often, there is only a single rope, and you shimmy along it, um, or uh, you know, basically, you hold on to it with your hands and your knees, and you shimmy along it from underneath, and that's how you get from one place to another. And that's, and that, that kind of rope bridges is very traditional in China uh, for a long time and in Tibet. Um, and I suspect a lot of places, they'll honestly. They'll also have, right, they'll also have uh, rope bridges that, uh, where that's the bridge, but they'll have a, a little uh, bucket uh, that goes under the bridge, and then they'll have two ropes that attach to the bucket, and people will pull you from one side to the other. Like one person will shimmy along and then they'll put the school kid in the bucket and then they'll pull the bucket with the school kid from one side to the other and then they'll send back the bucket and get another school kid. And that's how kids commute to school in many places in the world is they get pulled over the river by a bucket. There's a, if you want to steal from a slightly different set of cultures, but this is, I think this could be quite fun for your deer clan and fox clan, the ones who live really, really in the forested mountains and, and have areas to go through. There are living bridges where they, they may or may not start with a rope bridge, but they trail tree branches and tree roots across a gap. And over the generations, they grow into very strong and sturdy bridges, but they're literally made out of tree, growing tree, living living bridges. Uh, that might be a fun image to do in your very deep mountains if you're getting a bit mystical, and especially if you're getting mm, into areas that are very strongly associated with nature. So that could be a, a thing to steal. Anyway, so uh, these little... Okay, go ahead. You do the next one. Yeah, so given the difficulties of getting from one place to another, and as I said, these places are thus quite isolated. In terms of the culture of these villages, you know, what do you find when you get there? They're going to be very insular. They're unused to outsiders or visitors. They're going to be a very small set group of people who they see every single day. And only specific people who make the long journey and difficult journey to get there. So when this group of player characters turns up, they're really not going to be sure what to do with them. And they're going to be, they're very likely to be very standoffish because here are these new people and they don't know how they fit into their village. That means they're very self-sufficient, both in terms of materials, but also socially and culturally. A good example of this is the village mentioned that a good example of this is the village that is the centerpiece for Night Parade of a Hundred Demons by Marie Brennan. I recommend that novel for a bunch of reasons, but in this case, here is a an isolated mountain village and what happens there. Um, Snow and Sun is also a, a place where you see one of these isolated villages. Because of their isolation, they can end up being targeted by sects like the Perfect Land sect 
or moon cultists or other groups because they can get away with a whole bunch of stuff that they wouldn't be able to get away with in a less isolated place. Fewer people come there, so fewer people are going to notice. And also, fewer people come there, so fewer people come by with different opinions and different ideologies for the villagers to compare and contrast to. And honestly, even if they're not being targeted by people like that, an isolated village could well come up with its own strange ideas because they live in this place and they don't have much contact with the outside world. And so they can form their own little society that doesn't quite conform to what the rest of the country would be used to, simply because they just don't talk to anybody else. Uh, so, yeah, that that's going to be an aspect of you find, yeah. Right. These little villages would be supported by goat herding, uh, a little bit of farming, and often primarily, at least for export, mining. And so we'll talk about mining in a little bit. The farming that they can do often won't be rice farming, but when there is rice farming, they'll have these tiny little small terraces for rice farming. Uh, there are elevation limits on rice farming. So. There is, yeah. But the the very, very terraced mountainside is a common site, I would think, in these mountains. Up until, the, as you say, once you, got to get, once you get beyond a certain point, not anymore. But in the lower slopes, you may well see all of these, you know, everything is terraced. There's like no natural slope left it's all terraces because they will try and farm every single inch but then if you go further up you can't even do that it's just not worth it's not worth it and so instead you end up with um other things like like say herding hunting because these these communities tend to be small enough that they can actually be supplied through hunter gathering in a way that a larger village just can't they you don't need they because they can't support that population density you can survive through hunting and, and gathering and some farming. But yeah, mining is the most likely reason to be up in that high mountain because that's the way you get something to trade for food. Uh, the and, and, and A feature that is I, I quite like, it's very distinctive to do with the mountains, is the way they tend to get fortified. Historically, the main fortifications for a long, long time were... Yamajiro, mountain castles, also called Sanjo, because essentially you've got the mountain doing most of the job for you already. It's already limiting the number of approaches to where you can get to. You've got these ridge lines that are the only way you can really, really get up. Um, you know, the sheer sides you can't climb, all that kind of stuff. So these were repurposed and you know, altered slightly to make them into fortifications. So you have these lower peaks and they could be flattened a bit and that can become a gatehouse or a small bailey, which can only be, because it can only be approached up through this ridgeline because on either side of the ridgeline are the very, very steep slopes. And there you go. You just build a gate over that, have a little bit of a guardhouse behind that. And now you've got a very difficult fortification to overcome and then higher up. At the top of the mountain, you can have your main fortress and main living areas and that sort of thing. And you can have a series of these leading up to the main keep from different directions. They, they would also cut trenches across those ridge lines and then have drawbridges or bridges rigged to collapse and so on. So with a very small amount of modification of the existing natural landscape, you can have a very, very well-defended fortress. And this was quite common. Um, in the later era, you could almost argue that the later, the castles that we're used to, the castles, the, the iconic Japanese castle, you could argue that they're all built on hills or mountains. It's just that if they didn't have one available, they'd build an artificial hill to put it on. But before those iconic castles, they, yeah, a lot of them were, were Yamajiro. They would be prevalent very much in the Dragonlands, and I would actually argue that pretty much all the fortifications in the Dragonlands would be this kind of mountain castle. Apart from that, it gives a nice, distinctive style to the Dragonlands, and I'm all for giving 
each individual clan something very distinctive. So you, when you go there, you know you know where you are because only those people build like this. But you would also see those on the spine of the world mountains, especially around Baden Pass. I suspect on either side of Baden Pass, you would have fortifications very much like that, and on, on the lion the lion half and the scorpion half, because it's just an you're already making use of things that are there as opposed to having to build all the fortifications yourself. So that is a fun uh, look of things. Now, before we go on, so this is outside of the episode, editing, because we're now on 50 minutes. Do we want to stop here or do we, want to, do we think we can do mining? I, uh, I'd kind of like to do mining, but I, you know, I would want to chop some out um all right um seabass when you edit this uh we are going to do this bit this week and we will also do this bit next week and we can chop out one or the other all right um because we've also blathered a bit on some things so it might not be right so we're going to continue this week and and then we'll repeat this section at if uh, if you don't chop it out, <laughs> I guess that's the best way I'll put it out. All right, uh, going on. All right, so how, how are these all things built and what's sustaining all of this? Well, that would all be based on mining. Now, mining is kind of uh, complicated because in Japan, there are only a handful of bigger mines. And those bigger mines are only for coal, iron, and copper. Um, so, and even in those big mines, and they aren't huge by other countries' standards, those resources themselves were not really developed until the Tokugawa period, until mid-Tokugawa. Mid um, mining, getting resources uh, in traditional Japan uh, occurred in what's called placer deposits. So placer deposits are where a glacier or river carves a bunch of gravel out of the side of a mountain and deposits that down in the valley. And then the fast-running rivers, because they're coming off of these mountains, erode these ores from the mountain and sort them. And then what miners do is they pull out pans and they dig the heavier metals or material out of the gravel beds. So it's all on the surface. It's all in the gravel rather than um, uh, in the, you know, digging a hole in the ground and going into the hole. So that's just, that's just how mining was done historically in, in Japan. Um, also, in Japan, um, there wasn't as much deforestation because it wasn't inhabited as long as China. Um, well, and, 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 and also, deforestation. so much of the forest was on mountains where you couldn't live anyway. So there, there, wasn't, there wasn't that kind of, let's clear this land so we can farm it. So yeah, yeah, they didn't have the deforestation, yeah. And when there's no deforestation, then charcoal is a perfectly good home heating source i mean however i, I mean for, there is massive deforestation yeah, you, you mine coal yeah mine coal i mean interestingly <laughs> the the japanese term for coal is literally rock charcoal sekitan rock charcoal because they, they just didn't need it because they could they could use uh charcoal because they they didn't need to go mining for it um, although like digging in holes wasn't that common and it wasn't really developed, these resources weren't really developed into the Tokugawa period. There were some, there was gold mining and silver mining was quite, it was a key thing because that was one of the things, but that, that the, the, the trade goods, uh, at least that comes up a lot when specifically when uh, the Mongols were trying to invade, they wanted some of those resources, but I suspect like you're talking like there were placer deposits. In samurai dramas, which is not necessarily history, but it's a thing we're stealing from when we when we come up with, with our plots, one of the punishments for certain types of criminal were hard labor in gold mines. That's a thing that comes up as a plot point. Whether that was historical or not, 
is another question, and I honestly don't know the answer. But I've seen it a few times as a plot point that that there were these mines, uh, gold mines run by in this in in these samurai dramas run by the shogunate, and criminals could end up as miners as part of their punishment. So that might be a thing you want so to chuck in. There were a couple mines, but they were, as I said, they were they were added late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that said, all of this said, uh, mining for something like jade or mining in topography like Rokugans, as opposed to Japan, because they're different, is much more intense because their need is so great. Um, and it would require mining techniques more like those developed in ancient China. And that's fine because China had very sophisticated mining. Okay. Uh, well, more sophisticated mining. Um, so just for an idea, uh, in China, in China, they, they had excellent metallurgy. They could do mineral identification the way we do it, um, in modern times with a book of like hardness and luster and stuff of minerals. They had a, we have that, that book and it was written in 2000 BC. All right. Um, they crafted in nephrite jade in copper and bronze by 2000 BC. So as I said, we have books like Mountains and Seas by Shanghai Jing or Chat by the Dream or Chat by Dream Creek by Shen Kyo on how to identify minerals. And so all of this mineral identification and metallurgy could have made its way to Japan by the Heian period. I mean, this was all absolutely Heian. So they had access to all this information. I mean, I suspect... The Chinese also... I, 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 sorry. I suspect that it's not so much that the Japanese couldn't do these things. It's that because of the specifics of their circumstances, they didn't need to, or it was just that much less convenient that they didn't. And I, I, it's a very common thing, and I think we need to, like, looking back in history in general, of we do this thing, these people don't do this thing, they must be idiots. I think I've complained about this before. And when you actually start looking into it, it's they don't do that thing because it wasn't useful to them in their specific circumstances, whereas it was for us. So it's entirely reasonable for them to know this information but they just didn't need it and so it didn't become part of the daily life the way it did in other places so yeah in in our rock again for example because things are different because the mountains are in different places and are different sorts of mountains and they have different needs like a whacking great big army of horrible undead beasties on your doorstep they would have developed those techniques because it was useful and necessary and that is entirely reasonable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So um, an, another thing, for example, that we don't, some examples of exactly what you're talking about. Um, the Chinese were using natural gas or had an understanding of and could map and use natural gas and petroleum and had an understanding of subsurface geology, like where to tap for natural gas and stuff by the 1740s before that was ever done, discovered in the West. But because China was closing off at this time from Europe, they never had the need to mine for petroleum or, or you know, tap those resources the way they did in the West. Um, so even, even though it had, they had the scientific understanding, okay, in their elite, because they had this scholarly class of scientists in, well, it's not scientists, this class of scholars in China that studied the natural world very carefully. This is just the way the Chinese society was built. Um, they had a lot of scientific understanding for significant minds and metallurgy. But what they did not have that the West did was um, a drive, like you said, for capitalistic 
exploitation to do intensive mining for trade because they're all closed off. So the way mining occurred, and this is this wood map to Rokugan, would be in these scattered mines that are all out that are tapped quickly. So a group of fi- farmers finds a mine in their area, right? They all drop farming for a while, go mine that, dig out as much as they can, trade it all away, and then they go back to their farms. Rather than having a professional uh, mining class that would go from mine to mine or try and explore deeper than the vein runs or anything like that, because there wasn't the drive to keep mining when there was no or are there? Well, yeah, once once you get to the point of, okay, we've gotten all the easy stuff, there's some stuff still there, but that it's going to be a pain to get to. Are we going to, given the amount of effort we're going to have to put in, would we be better off farming at this point? And because there isn't that, we must get all of it. We must get all of it. It's so valuable. There isn't that kind of drive. They're much more likely to go, you know, I'm going back to farming. We've gotten all the stuff we can, or at least the stuff we can get to easily. That's good enough. Call a day. Go home. Whereas if you start getting into, we must have. I mean, I think like the the difference between this is like a gold mine in Rock again. They might have that attitude of yeah, there's technically still some shiny stuff in there, but we'd have to like go deep into the ground and we'd have to process so much ore. No point. But if it was jade in Crablands, then they might say no, no, no. We're sticking here. We're going to get all this jade out because we need all of it. So you might have you might have uh, both of those things happening, where where there's a kind of we're not going to mind this intensely because we don't care, but this other stuff, oh, we do care about that. So we're going to have professional miners for that uh, because Rokian is not China and it's not Japan either. It's its own thing because you know neither Japan nor China had the Shadowlands <laughs> to, to worry about. That's true. That might be it. <laughs> that might change it a bit. But overall, in jade, especially, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for jade specifically. Um, f- overall, though, China had the scientific knowledge of mineralogy, could use it to find ores and stuff. But since it was explored primarily in abstract among the scholarly elite, it wasn't really used to try and increase mining. Yeah, they they did have deep hole mining for precious goods which would be the equivalent of the stuff i'm talking about like jade and that um but the elite didn't really care for it it was seen as a farmer's thing oh, that, that's that's the farmers do that it, it's like the elite don't go around you know instructing people on crop rotation <laughs> exactly right. exactly are you, are you sure should you not be palming some uh, wheat here i think that would be much better given the soil conditions uh, yes uh, your worship they didn't they didn't do that there was kind of farmers know what they're doing we don't care about that we've got poetry to do much more important and stars to look at come on um like they theoretically could do but they they tended not to care so much so you might get a bit more of official involvement with specifically jade and specifically the crab because jade is just so important but i don't think you'd get caillou caring too much about a silver mine or a copper mine or even even an iron mine so long as enough comes through they're not going to worry too much um another main thing you want to think about is that obviously whereas in the west we would be using wood to shore up our mines. It'll almost certainly be bamboo in Rokugani mines. That will be the most likely uh, building material because it is cheap, it is plentiful, it grows quickly, it's light but strong, and grows in these kind of fairly regular shapes. And you know, this, this, they're almost all the same kind of tube shape, handy stuff. So that's likely what you're going to be seeing. Right. Right. But that's it for us this week. We've, we've got more to talk about uh, next week. But I wanted to give a call out to our sister podcast and Patreons. Uh, our call out to Fortune and Strife, which is our affiliated actual play podcast, as well as our friends at D20 Radio. Our content is funded by the Community Discord Patreon, which supports our editing costs and our hosting costs. And on our website, you can find longer term information, summaries of podcasts, 
RVG tools, forums, and more. And for our Patreons on Patreon, we have special bonus content like Adventure Seeds, early access to our actual play podcast, and more. Uh, online, you can find us on our website, courtgamespod.com. On Twitter, we are twitter.com courtgamespod. And on Patreon, we are patreon.com slash courtgames. That's it for us this week. This is Kikita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And I have been Korvar. And until we meet again, keep your jade handy. Radio, your gamers roll.